Welcome everyone to the Solid Responder Podcast, where we share stories from first responders and talk about the past, the present, and the future in disaster response. Solid Responder highlights key issues in emergency response, exploring, engaging, and educating the emergency response community with featured guests from diverse all-hazard emergency response disciplines. Listen in as leading experts in the field tell their personal stories of dramatic and dangerous moments, the lessons that they learned, and how their skills and leadership were put to the test. Listen in as we talk about taking good medicine to bad places. I'm your host, Joe Hernandez, and the Solid Responder Podcast, squared away, right away. Hello again and welcome everyone to the Solid Responder Podcast, episode two, where we're going to continue to share stories from first responders. You know, I've been excited all week thinking about this particular episode uh, where we're going to be traveling north. We're going to go to a response community all the way into Canada, where we're going to be spending some time with the next guest, a solid responder and hero himself. Um, a good friend, uh, Chief Dave Bain, who is with Canada Task Force 2. He is also uh, serves with the City of Red Deer Emergency Services. And I first got to meet Dave back in the early 2000s when uh, he was taking a medical team specialist course at Teeks in my early days as an instructor. And I had that pleasure of meeting him and a few other folks from Canada Task Force 2, which was really interesting. And uh, I'm just going to let him tell you more about himself, and uh, we're going to explore this uh, Canada's urban search and rescue system, and I'm just ex excited as hopefully everyone that's listening uh, is going to find out tonight. Dave. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I, yeah, I've been super excited to do this. This is, yeah, maybe I don't have much going on in my life, but this is super exciting, <laughs> so it's pretty cool. Uh, let's see. I'll give you a background on me. So, um, I'll start off with the Canadian. So in Canada, um, you know, we call it a heavy urban search and rescue. And I think not that there's a difference, but just um, our government has gone to not great lengths, I would say, but to lengths to delineate between a heavy, a medium and a light urban search and rescue. Probably no different than your FEMA teams, your state team, stuff like that. Um, we don't have a lot of so, for example, um, embedded in a, in a major city, a heavy urban search and rescue component. And so um, they had to kind of define what that would be in Canada. So our team is one of six that are classified as a heavy urban search and rescue team. And our team started uh, back in the early 2000s, right after 9-11, some of the funding had come out. And they, the Calgary Fire Department decided they wanted to... Um, Kind of jump on board with that and so the team started with them and then when i started in 2008 um it was the first e external class if you will that joined the team up till then it was all just members of the calgary fire department's um technical rescue team or or heavy rescue team um and so there was what they really did was targeted um firefighter paramedics in and around the city of calgary um, a lot of our municipalities were cross-trained, so no different than my job here in Red Deer is we're completely cross-trained. And in fact, um, you know, when I was on the floor here, uh, one day I would be on the ambulance, the next day I would be on the engine. And 
if I need to jump on the medic <laughs> because they needed a medic there, then that's what it was. And I absolutely love that part of the job. So, um, you know, I always make the joke, two jobs, one paycheck. What, what can you love about it? Um, so with the team, though, uh, you know, at first we had some funding kind of hiccups along the way because we started off with what was called JEP grants. That was the Joint Emergency Preparedness Plan grants for the government at the time. And post 9-11, as I'm sure it was in the States, there was lots of money thrown at lots of things. Um, a lot of the fire departments, my own included, were able to get extra training, extra equipment on uh, what you would call WMD. We call it CBRNE up here. So chemical, biological, radioactive, nuclear, and explosive. So we had tons of that kind of training. And that we started to buy things from that JEP grant uh, for our team. Um, but you know, then the funding kind of froze and we had to switch gears. And so what we did was our uh, provincial government stepped up in Alberta and said, you know what, we'll, we'll help to fund that team. So we're all excited about that. But the kind of caveat to it is you can't just be a heavy urban search and rescue team because we don't go up the door for that kind of stuff all the time, right? We're still waiting for our first major HUSAR deployment. But what we've done is now become the provincial disaster team as well. And so that's really dovetail into us going out the door more. We've uh, major deployments for wildfires, flooding, a lot of incident management team deployments. I was just up in Whitehorse, Yukon for major flooding there a few weeks ago, stuff like that. So um, that's kind of the history. So in, in uh, Canada, six teams, we've got one in Halifax, a new team that started in Montreal. Um, team in Toronto, team in Manitoba, us here in Alberta, and then a uh, team in Vancouver. And so they're spread out. Our biggest challenge is geographics. You know, um, I always get a chuckle when I watch the FEMA stuff and they go, oh, we drove across four states to prepare for a hurricane. I could drive for days and days and not get out of Alberta. So <laughs> wow. we've got geography to deal with. Um, so that's kind of the, the Canadian system. That's some of the stuff we face. Me personally, I've been in emergency services for about 26, 27 years, been with the city of Red Deer for 17 years, and I've been in the training uh, division or training branch for the last six, and I've been the chief training officer for uh, just coming on the last year. So uh, busy guy, lots going on, but you know, that's how most of us live. So yeah. Fantastic. Uh, you know, it sounds basically just like we started here in the States, um, getting funding together, being able to be nominated, blessed. Uh, going from a local resource to a state resource and a federal resource is they grew the FEMA system because it didn't start with the 28 teams that they do now have. Right. Uh, it grew from there. And um, teams still looking for that, that slot. Is it going to keep growing? Is it going to get smaller? Uh, we did see a few years ago a team get eliminated due to several issues. And one of the state teams who was prepared, had the equipment and the training and were just taken and, and slid into that slot. And that was New Jersey Task Force One coming into the system. So pretty much is the same. And, and what we see almost like you probably provincial wise, state wise, we're seeing more movement within the state teams than mm -hmm. sometimes we see in the FEMA teams just because they're easier to move and less budget is involved. And what the mission is it's easier to modulate them into that into that system, even though FEMA now has started those mission ready packages, i.e. for the water mission ready packages. Same thing with the C-Bernie WMD mission ready package to be able to get those out the door, even a medical mission ready package. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, the water being the biggest one, it started after Katrina. Um, yeah. So uh, I think that's fantastic. And uh, um, I'm glad to see that, uh, that there's been a lot going on. And, and I want to hear about your training and what's going on, because I know that you guys have a, a robust team of pretty much mirrored, I think, what the what the states have done, correct? Yeah. So what we did when we started the, the HUSAR program here is we we pretty much mirrored everything that we saw FEMA doing. And I mean, like I, I've said before uh, to people is that the thing about FEMA, you guys have a disaster season, yeah. right? Every year you practice deployments, demobs, uh, you're able to fine tune and tweak things because you're just, you're getting the repetition. We don't get the repetition as much. It's taken us, you know, again, 12, 13 years have been on the team, half a dozen deployments. And um, not all of those were big deployments. Some of those are the smaller, like you said, the mission ready package, you know, we send, uh, we've had water deployments. We've had something as simple as we need to set up some tents to protect the crime scene for the local police. Well, that's still getting, going through the check-in process, getting this repetition, setting up tents, so even though it's super small scale, you know, it's good practice and training for us. Um, one of the things, like I had mentioned, one of the things we're seeing a lot more of, and we're starting to see uh, it mimic like you guys have done in the States, uh, we've started creating incident management teams strategically located. And again, because of our geography, um, you know, to get an IMT somewhere. So again, we were called from Calgary to go up to uh, Whitehorse Yukon, which is about a 12, 14 hour drive or well, 20 hour drive, I guess, if you went straight. Hmm. Um, and that's just because we were the low, we were the closest IMT to go to that. And so we're starting to look at what resources we need strategically placed. Um, you know, the interesting part about Canada is our population base is all within mostly within six hours of the American border. But, you know, we go all the way up to the North Pole as far hmm. as Canadian geography. So you know, con population centered on the south, hmm. but lots of, you know, we still got people living in the north, so that geography can sometimes play a challenge. Interesting. And you guys have been to some events, wildfires uh, mm -hmm. across the uh, Canada, as well as uh, flooding and uh, snow events that have, uh, uh, and, and flooding that in Calgary itself that uh, were historic. And uh, you mentioned North Pole at... Uh, <laughs> When you're trying to take good medicine into bad places and you're dealing with temperatures like the North Pole, that's something that we've just never, uh, at least this flatlander and this warm population down towards the Caribbean and South Florida has never really experienced. And I don't think we could ever layer enough to stay warm enough. Yeah. Um, and then even if we could, our equipment is not set up and geared for that environment. And so... For that reason, uh, you know, I want to hear how you guys have dealt with that. I, I know that we've been asking manufacturers and vendors to think about that, to open their ears, to be more um, uh, R&D into what we do and how we train and say, hey, we got the better mousetrap. We've got a way to keep things warm or we've got a way to keep things cold because I can't imagine taking something out in sub-zero temperature and, uh, and trying to get it to stay warm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting. So up here, it's not just from a HUSAR perspective, just a, an EMS perspective of, you know, <coughs> excuse me, um, how do you respond to a motor vehicle accident when it is 30 below Celsius 
um, and you're putting in IV fluids, well, you know, those IV fluids are cold, relatively speaking, and we all know how bad cold and trauma is. And so, you know, those are some of, you know, in old days, tricks of the trade, I put a couple IV bags under my armpits, under my coat to keep warm, because that's what I'm going to put in my patient, little things like that. One of the big things when we came back from doing med spec down in, uh, in Teaks was we started talking about, okay, how are we going to do this? Because we were building our medical specialist course and our medical specialist program. And so just give you background from our team. We originally sent three physicians down to take that course. They came back like, oh, it was a fantastic course. It was awesome. But they didn't have the capacity to actually now build a program. So then three medics, myself, one of them, three of us went down, took the course with you, Joe, and, and uh, a bunch of others. And when we came back, now we were tasked with not only building our medical team, but also building the Canadian version of the disaster medical specialist course. And one of the first conversations we had is, I think we need to figure out cold weather. And so things like, how do we transport our drugs and not have them freeze? How do we, um, you know, how do we deal with uh, equipment that might become brittle if it's left on the side of a soft bed trailer, soft wall trailer that's going down the highway when it's 40 below Celsius, things like that where, you know, and it's interesting, you talk about being from Florida, you're probably dealing with the other side of it, I'm assuming, where it's super hot and you're trying to make sure things are cool. Well, eight months out of the year up here in Canada, uh, it's cold enough that we have to consider those things. So, you know, um, you mentioned the manufacturers. Those are, you know, you want to talk about a market up here in Canada. Well, keeping IV fluids warm, uh, bags or insulation or, or heaters to keep medications warm, uh, things just meant for transport and transit, right? Those are some of the challenges we face, not to mention just winter, like footing and all that other stuff. Like our, I'm sure that our deployment cash, personal deployment cash is a lot more than down the States because we literally have one bag that's a cold weather bag and has cold weather boots, cold weather gloves, cold weather jacket, all that stuff. And so then it, you start looking, okay, well, what do I need to take? You know, what's what's weather going to be like? And I mean, in Alberta, it changes at like drop of a hat. So um, yeah, I mean, that's the challenges of being north of 49. So hey, training preparation and response. And you guys 100%. have it uh, pretty much under uh, wrap from my understanding is that thought of being able to pack that extra bag to be able to go on that particular specific deployment. Yeah. <laughs> Hats off to you guys on that response. Uh, I remember uh, early um, teaching a course up at the react center a few years mm -hmm. ago and it was during the mid-march and uh the facilities director said we can cover the facility it's up in wisconsin we can cover it because there's still snow on the ground and some things are frozen and we could pump heat inside the rubble pile and i said wait a minute time out this is not something that we're used to if we have any kind of water in there it's going to stay water i've never had the idea that you know, this stuff could be frozen ice inside those pipes. And I said, uh, let's not pump heat in it. And what a learning experience we, we could get from that, not only just from the Southern teams, but everywhere that just aren't exposed to being outside for that long period of time. And so instead of doing 30, 45 minute rotations, we were limiting them to 15 minutes, just from the exposure that the responder was getting into trying to get into the trap and trap victims that were inside there. And it was, it was phenomenal. So there's so much to learn from you all in our training uh, 
curriculum that's going on right now, we're, we're changing that. We're adding a few things and, and eliminating a few things. We put some on computer-based training to get rid of the, the crush syndrome that was happening on our, on our bottoms as we sat in the chairs and just did PowerPoint after PowerPoint. And we added a few more skill stations and a few more scenarios. Um, Disaster Medical Solutions is going to be doing a class in Ocala. It's a FEMA equivalent course. And uh, if you want to get out of the cold that first week of uh, December coming in, you're more than welcome to come down and present to the FEMA group uh, that's going to be down there and a lot of state urban search and rescue uh, folks just like you're going to have uh, from local provinces that, that attend that class. We would love to hear what you guys have uh, shared there. We just added a few components to that, but it's been interesting and you guys have been doing a lot of exercises. So I want to hear about that too. And one of them was... I loved seeing the cohesion of seeing FEMA and the Canadian USAR system getting together, USAR, and doing an exercise together that replicated, I guess, a 7.7 .7 earthquake that would have put a zipper up across the middle of the entire continent and split us in half, which really would have made us a, a south and a north shared as opposed to an east and a west. So kind of let's depend on each other's nation. Uh, how did that go? Well, first of all, the the training facilities and the quality of that exercise was just unbelievable. And, you know, it's it's kind of funny. I was a little jealous in that exercise because I was stuck in the command tent. I, I always have this joke of I better never deploy and my uniform be clean at the end. And, uh, you know, that's the rescue medical guy in me. But I learned, I can't even tell you how much I learned there. Like, and the, the fantastic point, other than just the realism of the scenarios and the, the input from the exercise controllers and just, it was just all top notch and phenomenal. But I think the, the most valuable piece to that is exactly like you said, is now we're working with FEMA teams. Um, we're embedded with FEMA teams. So if we had to roll out the door, to assist the US or vice versa, mm -hmm. you know, that interoperability piece that we talk about in emergency response, it's it's there and we can we know what to expect. And you know, that exercise, we had teams from Australia there as well. And they've now fostered friendships and, and networking that we are in contact with Australian teams, with UK teams um, to talk about. So one of the things in Canada that we're pursuing as a as a program across the country is Insurog as a certification piece, not necessarily to deploy internationally, but to meet a certain standard. And, um, you know, that networking piece is just, you can't put a price on that, you know, to be able to pick up the phone and say, hey, I have a question. And, you know, my hat's off to the FEMA program. Um, a little while ago for my home department, we were trying to figure out how we we're going to allow people to go away for deployment because almost my whole chief officer team in my department are now part of our Canada Task Force 2 team. So how do we all leave? <laughs> and, and you know, no one's here to run the asylum, so to speak. Sure, and sure. Uh, so we were coming up with kind of like your red, blue, red, white, and blue. Now we, it's Canada. So it's a red and white rotation. But, uh, you know, I, I was tasked with calling all around and, and finding out what other task force teams do. And I can't say enough about talking to task force leaders and members down in the States that dropped everything they were doing and, and sharing information. And, you know, this is what we did. This worked well. This didn't work well. Just... You know, that camaraderie, that brother and sisterhood is just unbelievable. But the exercise itself was, um, you know, it couldn't have been more timely because when, and you have to forgive me, but 
couple of years ago, you, you guys had a super strong hurricane season and it was the first time Public Safety Canada actually offered up our HUSAR program for deployment. And I can't tell you what a big step that was because before they were, well, no, you guys are never gonna leave the country. We need you here. But the fact that we're now saying, you know what, we think we're good enough to offer that outside the country um, is just, you know, for us, that was a real um, watershed litmus test kind of thing for us, so. Wow, fantastic. Uh, I mean, uh, just to see that there's a, a lot of similarities. You mm -hmm. come from the same uh, beginnings that I did with that cross-trained dual role IAFF type fire rescue service. I wear one hat one day and the next day I wear the other one. And sometimes I don't want to put the other one on because it's just too <laughs> nice wearing the other one and you miss that. And it, it just is what it is. And I think that transition into USAR is easy. And then when you now you're a witness of it, that when you see a brother from another mother of being from either one state, one province and or one country difference, it's easy to assimilate from one team into another and to see that they were doing that and offering themselves up for suggestions, advice, consulting, whatever you need, uh, let us know what kind of list you need and we'll send it to you. And we've mm -hmm. done some of that with people needing MOUs, wondering how are we going to get medications for our task force without laying the money up front yeah. and have it organized. And so developing, you know, MOUs with hospitals and then being able to pull that re resource out at the time of a deployment, even though you're in a two to four hour window and all of that begins a, a, um, an issue. How was is your issues with, uh, with pharmaceuticals and with uh, physicians in the USAR system in Canada? Um, I'm, it probably is close to the same that we're having here in the U.S. and some talks we're having now. Yeah, the, the pharmaceutical piece was another thing that we had to work out when we came back from MedSpec was exactly that, is how do we get uh, our cash full of medications um, and they're ready to go so we're out the door and it's not slowing us down. But at the same time, we don't want, you know, $100,000 worth of, uh, that's Canadian dollars, by the way, <laughs> $100,000 of medication that all expires all the same month, same year. Right. And so we, again, we had MOUs, same as you, that we talked to local hospitals that, hey, you know what, can, when our stuff's getting close to uh, expiry, can we trade it in? What we're lucky for here in Alberta is that the government um, administers healthcare here. And so what I mean by that is uh, Alberta Health Services, which is a government organization, they, they run all of our, our health services here in the province. So what's nice is that they're, um, a stakeholder and they got skin in the game for us to respond because yeah, we're supporting the government. So they've been really good with those kinds of understandings and, and supporting us for stuff like that. Um, the physician one's an interesting one because um, we've had one, it, it's interesting. We had one core physician who's been on the team back when it was just Calgary fire. And what's interesting was he was a physician before kind of got a little bored and woke up one day and said, you know, I always want to be a firefighter. So he literally went to Calgary Fire, went through rookie school, became a Calgary firefighter, worked on Nine Heavy, which is the heavy rescue company back then. And uh, and then, you know, realized oh, I can still make a lot of money as a doc. So then he pulled back and kind of became the medical director, and everything else. He's our original OG medical director on our team. So um, we're really lucky. He's our core. Like he's been there the whole time. And he 
keeps trying to recruit docs, but what we get is a lot of turnover because the docs come and, um, you know, emergency medicine physicians, and as they do, they come for a period of time, then they move on to other things and other opportunities. So that constant turnover is difficult, especially when we make our docs go through med spec. Um, that's a difficult one too, is to ask a physician to clear their schedule for a whole week when they're a lot of times in residency, it's a difficult ask. And so um, we have that challenge. What we're getting a lot now is the University of Calgary and the University of Alberta in Edmonton, um, their medical programs have disaster medicine fellowships. So we're getting physicians that are specializing in disaster medicine. What better place than a disaster team to come and volunteer? So we're starting to pick those opportunities. I, I was just on a, we're running a medical specialist course in, in the new year in uh, end of March. And we were on a planning meeting last night. And I think we have four or five physicians on that that call. So we're, we're in good shape, but again, it can change, right? So uh, we do we do struggle sometimes making sure that we've got um, the support we've got, we can go out the door, but um, yeah. I mean, like anybody else, we have those challenges. I think that's 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 great. Uh, I know that we have some fellowship programs here in the United States as well. We've had some of those fellows who are transitioning and the same thing, they get credit hours for taking some type of disaster, either it's the medical team specialist course or they take wilderness medicine or hyperbaric mm -hmm. medicine. And um, the in University of Indiana and George Washington University are doing those. I believe there's another one in Texas doing the same thing. And it's great. I think it's a fantastic program. And we've also suffered the same thing with some teams either not having the physician, so not being able to go out the door or not actually telling the truth and going out the door without the physician. So that's yeah. a whole nother story of really that's not nice to the emergency management and or to the responding community that's in need. But uh, the talk of sharing physicians between task forces, a, a task force that may not be up on rotation uh, mm -hmm. could lend that physician out to that particular other task force that needs to go out. The credentials are all the same. He's only traveling from one state to another. And within the Stafford Act and that disaster, it opens up his practice pretty much across the country during that time. And it's interesting to see that we're not the only ones. Of course, it's just, it's a, it's a healthcare issue. And as we come from that dual role cross-trained and we enjoy being in those confined spaces and off those areas and being out in that extreme and for that long period of time, it changes as we get older, of course. It's harder to find that physician to do it. You guys got lucky in finding one that wanted to go back the other way. Uh, we have one that teaches with us that started as the EMT and fire and then went all the way to physician. So it's great cool. to see that. We've got a, 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 a our medical director for Disaster Medical Solutions and one of my uh, best friends and colleagues, she's the uh, director at Holtz Children's Hospital. She's a pediatric intensivist. She's been on the team since 1994 and it's hard to keep her out of a hole every time yeah. and she's still on the team and recently responded to the Surfside building collapse in uh, Miami Beach and to Hurricane Ida into uh, the Louisiana area. And they've got to tell her, doc, could you slow down? Uh, because she's that way, but not every physician is that way. And hats off to those that want to do this um, because we do need them. Uh, we need them for certain procedures. Uh, I had uh, one at one time say, why are you all teaching particular advanced procedures that they can't do in the normal day job 
quote unquote. And yeah. and so I wanted to understand. And, and Doc, would you would you just go a little bit further and let us know what you mean? And he said, Well, you know, a, a, a open um, thoracotomy, for instance. Yeah. Uh, you're yeah. also talking about a surgical crike. Um, mm -hmm. You're also talking about, of course, the possibility of an amputation. Mm -hmm. And it happened to be an emergency room physician, say, asking those questions. And I was, of course, the other procedures being different than an amputation. And I said, Doc, with all due respect, that amputation only falls in the category of a surgeon. So we're kind of all out of that. But in yeah. the event that we have a rolled over bus or a rolled over cement truck or a train that derailed and we don't have access to a trauma surgeon out of that center and we have an emergency room physician, and we have a paramedic that has taken the time to come out and take these advanced courses, the same thing I heard you say that you guys are teaching in that med spec class, the amputations, wouldn't that be better to have on scene than any other scrub nurse or anyone that hasn't seen that type of an event? Uh, and, and by the way, the commander on that scene is still the fire chief that's, or a commander battalion chief that's on that scene even though you're a higher level of education being on the medical level, we still fall under that jurisdiction. So it, it, it's really interesting to see that. And uh, we're kind of all the same and, and falling under that. Um, uh, it's going to be interesting to hear how you guys have transitioned into the world of IE ketamine. I think we mm -hmm. learned a lot from you guys uh, early on in ketamine. That was not an acceptable practice still kind of is debated even in some agencies some medical directors don't want it but we have learned a lot so much that it became even a debate during an amputation procedure in 2010 in Haiti just because of the availability of tertiary care there was none and so what were we going to deal with a person who was on yes <laughs> and thank you for yep given us that education on that medication and at least oh yeah laxing that up for us <laughs> yeah it, it is interesting we've had those same conversations about um what if we had to roll out the door without a physician it just you know we got to get out the door we got to go and then you know it's conversations well do we patch in a local physician but then a local physician's not familiar with the use of and just like you said you know if we said hey i'm I'm on scene with this and uh, I think we need to do an amputation that, you know, I can, I can hear the crickets now on the phone as the doctor and you can't do that. So, you know, it's even just making people aware of our capabilities. And, you know, I, I haven't, I don't know if I've said it, but I'll make sure that I say it, that the team I'm on is the most phenomenal group of people that I've ever met. I, I truly consider them my family and um, you know, there's not one of them that wouldn't go the extra mile for someone. But at the same time, you know, liability wise, as a team, as a, as a system, as a program, we don't want to put people in the position where, you know, life or death, career or not. And so, you know, we've slowly been trying to work out some of that stuff, but the landscape changes. And so the goalposts move and, you know, we had the conversation. So for example, our team, when they originally created it, was in anticipation of a major earthquake happening in British Columbia. And we always, this sounds terrible, but you know, what happens when Vancouver falls in the ocean? Because that's where the earthquake's gonna be. Mm -hmm. And so their team will be out of play. So we would be responding. And so the question is, well, now we're in, because in Canada, 
Um, each province has different healthcare control and, and governance. So now how does an Alberta paramedic, that amputation, for example, is outside of our normal scope of practice, but now how do we go to British Columbia and do that? So same, same conversations, you know, like yeah. I, I always make the joke, same pat or same, same issues, different patch. Yeah. So. Interesting. And that's the same thing we said and, and, and why they were set up the same reason if we lost um, now the grade eight, which we call them the, the eight teams out in yep. California, Utah yep. is not only going to have beachfront property, <laughs> but they're going to be first in on a disaster yep. because of that fault line that exists. And then the Andre fault line that, that, that exists up the center, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Um, and I love that you have keep mentioning the, not only the task force itself as a system, but also the province itself and the assistance from other teams mm -hmm. smaller within the province. And we got to see that in the south at the Surfside building collapse in Miami Beach, where the, it happened to fall right into the lap of two federal teams that were right there in, in, when it happened. Mm -hmm. And they so they had the resources of being a large fire department, fire rescue department with all the resources, having all those big cities around them and then even having the equipment that the federal government had supplied them yeah. millions of dollars worth of equipment and supplies to be able to do this heavy extrication and then we have an additional six teams so we have a total of eight teams within the state the other six being state assets maybe not as heavily equipped but what we have done and what's been really good is i believe you mentioned the same thing as the training is trying to maintain the same standards and we're going to continue hopefully in that same path so that when one of those members happens to integrate with another member from another county within the state but doesn't know that brother from the other mother because they don't operate in the same areas nor with the same protocols can kind of just intermingle just because the training's been the same and yeah. you just mentioned it with the advanced procedures that are going on uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. The goal of our med medical specialist program since, since we came back and looked at developing was creating the Canadian national standard um, based on what we learned. And our goal was always, okay, other five teams, send us your medical staff and we're all, or your medical members, and we're all going to be on the same page. Awesome. And that, that goalpost moves those, you know, we're still, that's still my personal goal. I've been the lead for that, um, course program for since we came back so what 10 years and uh that's always been my goal is to see a course where i look out and there's members from 18 or there's six teams and whatever so we're still working towards it but uh you know covid didn't help but uh you know that's our goal is that we're all teaching the same thing speaking the same language so exactly like you said we can take a medic from montreal and other than the french english issue but you know when i had them uh eye gel they know what an eye gel is when they hand me whatever i know what that is right that that's that should be the ultimate goal for anything like this of course and with our dialect in south florida they say the same thing they said hey what's, what's going on with the accent <laughs> we thought you guys then they keep coming in but uh fantastic and i love what you mentioned about the the red and white yay canada uh, fantastic <laughs> and and that support of having two teams and i know that I talked about it with Michael Lay from Maryland Task Force One, who was one of the first in at the Pentagon um, mm -hmm. Trade Center and uh, one of the big task force members from him, uh, Carr, along with his wife, and uh, did a 
family support and started this family support. And so when red is out and white stays at home, we've got to deal with those issues of white staying at home. And is that member going to say, hey, man, every time you guys go out the door, it just happens to be that white stays home and i've been doing this stuff for 10 years and i haven't gone out the door you know what i'm putting him i'm packing my bags you can have them i'm I'm off the team and we're having the same thing and so there is a a, what we call a complex ptsd outside of our normal ptsd of our job you know we do it but we go home and we're with significant others and our kids and uh, you know our 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 wives our, our husbands yet when we're on a deployment it's a longer period of time and so we've got that but those that stay behind the members that don't get the prepared, that did all the education, that don't get to go, that have a value resource of why we're going out the door to help while we're gone. And at the same time, when we get back, how can they help? What can they do? And let alone, we haven't even spoken about the families, you know, the spouses and, and the children and what they go through. And uh, it, even our towns, knowing that they've lost a member of the response community that's there for their own population and now we are helping someone else and they love that part of it and they love being an assistant for that but it still creates some type of a of a wave factor we saw children during 9-11 drawing pictures of people jumping out of buildings and buildings on fire so that affected them especially if their father or mother were part of that response team um what what's going on over there in uh, in canada with uh, with these situations well so we don't we don't have the same depth of resources, if you will, that you guys have in the States. We don't have a three deep team like like uh, some of the FEMA teams. So we're lucky in the sense that when the call comes, you know, the majority of the teams going out the door, or at least the majority of the teams responding, um, where we, we bridge these same issues. I know when I started on the team and I had to sit down with my kids and explain to them, okay, so daddy's on this team, they were young, um, daddy's on this rescue team and it was funny because uh, we used to watch rescue heroes when they were young and so that's the analogy I use I'm like this is a team like like Billy Blazes this is like rescue heroes and when there's a disaster we go and help people and so at first they thought it was the coolest thing in the world they're all excited until one day um, my youngest son saw um, and I can't remember if it's 9-11 footage I don't think it was but there was an earthquake and they saw collapsed buildings and everything else and suddenly he was preoccupied with, well, what if you get trapped in one of those buildings? It became real for him. And, you know, I, in my geekdom of just being super keen about, I'm going to go do medical rescue work and all this, forgot how it would run through in his mind. So um, had to sit down and explain things about how, you know, the team makes sure that daddy's being as safe as possible. And I get all my brothers and sisters that take care of me. No different than I talked to him when I started being a firefighter. Um, one of the things we did early on, on our team was what we call a backlink. And I don't know if you guys have something similar, but backlink, what it is, is we've got some members that are actually on our org chart, um, and they staff, uh, a link from the field or from site back to our family back in Calgary and in Alberta. And so our family members get updates through email. They can call at any time and say, hey, what's going on? You know, I was up thinking about what Dave's doing, blah, blah, blah. And they'll give them real-time updates. Obviously, you know, without the graphic um, details, but, you know, the team is there. They're operating. Everybody's safe. There's been no injuries. Everyone's doing really well, that kind of stuff. And then the other thing that we've done is check-in. So um, 
and we're, I mean, this is still uh, a work in progress, but, um, you know, trying to do, a, you get a check-in um, within a couple of days after you come back from a deployment. One of the ones they try to do is they won't call me. They'll make sure to call my wife. So they'll call when I'm at work, they'll call my wife and say, how is Dave? Have you noticed anything? Because as we all know, we'll go for months, weeks, or weeks, months, years, and not realize there's a change in us. But our family does. They notice right away. And so that's what will happen. How is he sleeping? How's whatever, right? And then follow up that way. And now even, again, with our medical specialist course, uh, one of the areas that I'm, I'm preparing for is uh, a mental health piece. So like you had mentioned it, you know, in day-to-day -day EMS work and rescue work, we talk about um, CISD, critical incident stress debris, stuff like that. Well, for USAR deployment, now we're talking extended incident stress. And that's the same, but different. And so we integrate that into our course, into our training as well. And that makes a big difference because now you're able to anticipate at day 10, day 11, oh, now I'm starting to see I'm becoming more irritable and I'm becoming short with people or whatever. So we're trying the best we can. We have a, a, a bunch of different programs up here that we use in the emergency services world and we use in our task force team as well. Um, one is called the Road to Mental Readiness, and it was developed by the Canadian military to prepare Canadian soldiers to deploy to the Middle East because they saw that they weren't mentally prepared for it. And it was such a success, they handed it down for free to emergency services. And so I've been teaching that course for the last couple of years, and just being an instructor has really changed my outlook because it's all about recognizing signs in you and giving, our, giving each other the, the common language. And so those kinds of programs... Uh, have gone a long way to take down the stigma of mental health. And so we can talk openly about, you know what, this is bothering me. Whereas before someone would kind of look at you and, you know, like you were, had a flaw or you personal, uh, uh, you weren't personally strong. And now we realize, yes, you are, you're just human. Wow, that in itself is a show. I mean, I'd love to have you back on that just so that we can, sure. uh, push more of that button. I, I, you, you hit my passion, you hit a few other people's passion that I know that are strongly behind that. Um, I love the surveillance of mm -hmm. not only coming back weeks later, uh, but not talking to the particular responder, but to the particular responder, significant other family member who are now affected by the return of that person and would more or less give you an honest answer versus an answer that we have always done within the fire service or the EMS service is just, we know how to deal with certain things and, and cover it over because that's the way that we learn how to how deal with things. And so I love that because they are, you figure we go away for that period of time. And so we leave them in charge and we come back and we try to be in charge and they're like, wait a minute, time out. You've been away for a little while and you have no idea what's happened. The refrigerator broke. I had to some have somebody fix the car because I had two flats and one of the kids lost the front tooth. And then I the car broke down and it's like, holy Toledo, Murphy's Law, what they call in the United States, something always happens when you're gone. 100%. And we've even gone to the point of saying, maybe let's start talking about having families do power of attorneys just because if I've got to pay a bill and you, for some reason, didn't put your wife on that bill, she can't pay it. And it's like, are you kidding me? No, it's just under your name, sir. It's not you and her. And I'm like, oh, 
And so something as simple in the military, like you said. So I love seeing what they have done in passing that down. Uh, 911, uh, the World Trade Center attacks, the Pentagon attacks, September the 11th, 2001, changed a lot of things, started the program, the ball rolling for the program to start happening within Canada. It, it lifted our programs. We had teams that responded now for the first time on that event. So they had done some training, but never really went out the door, as you said, to a major incident, i.e. it was Tennessee Task Force's one's first episode to go out the door in New Mexico's first real big event. So it was yeah. really big for them. And it changed our kids too, just like you mentioned that it really changed and affected your children, particularly your older one and saying, wait a minute, now that earthquake could affect dad or mom should something happen. Um, the September 11th issue happened when my three children were all in high school. So I had a freshman to a senior and I remember saying goodbye to them not knowing that within a few years, my two sons would be joining the US military and trying to do something, maybe not as a responder, but as a protector, but as a response into this being, again, what we've learned to do or uh, giving back in society as opposed to taking and how we've raised our kids and how they've seen us function. Uh, you reach in the levels as you have from firefighter to captain to to chief, to training chief, to being the USAR coordinator, to being able to put this thing together and then reaching out uh, to others and always having an open mind. I mean, it, it's fantastic. And and those, uh, I, I'm getting ready to start something else. Uh, I just in it writing in a blog and I'd love uh, to hear thoughts in it, just calling it trauma timeout, just taking some trauma timeout from our lives I'm getting ready to go on a vacation with my wife uh, uh, 40 years and going to really enjoy that time. And um, I enjoyed talking to a, another gentleman, Chris Fields from Oklahoma City Fire Department, who was one of the first in there at that major event way back in 1995, so long ago, so long ago. And Chris still married and, and functioning with his children and and, and uh, part of a, an organization called Trauma Behind the Badge. And He's that big uh, photograph that everybody remembers of a firefighter with his coat on and his helmet on holding a, a, a deceased child that they had pulled out from the daycare of the Oklahoma City bombing and the terrorist attack. Uh, so it was uh, uh, being that young on the job and having those incidents, we know that they don't always have good outcomes. I mean, we're seeing divorce rates going up 800% over there. We're now seeing in the States and I don't know how Canada's doing, but we are losing more firefighter personnel not on the job. We're losing them away from the job. We're now increased over 30% of folks doing it, even at the station. So uh, they're taking a couple episodes of that. Yeah. They're, they're taking their lives versus the job taking their lives during a, a, a call, a fire, an, an accident. So yeah. Uh, self-inflicting and so uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you guys are doing something about it i would love to hear more about it and uh hats off i mean I, I can't thank you enough and really would like to get back on there uh sometime in the future and uh possibly someone else and see how we can share information i'd love to see what uh, canada is doing and uh probably have a a, a lot better uh, outcome than we do for some reason uh just hearing uh, when some of the internationals come to the course here, seeing or hearing that they do not have the 
social issues sometimes that we have with overdoses in the States. Yeah. The other countries aren't seeing that. And so it seems to be a, a, a homeland type of issue here within the States and we've got to get down to the bottom of it. So Dave, I can't tell you enough how the people have uh, myself learned much, so much more of uh, Canada's uh, urban search and rescue system. Uh, it's so much uh, just like holding up a mirror to a certain degree, just a smaller population and uh, a smaller level, but you, really you guys are doing the same thing we are. And uh, tell me what you think. Uh, I'd love to have you back on at a certain time. And Well, I'd love to. Yeah, You've got it. You know, our Canadian, like I said, our Canadian system, we look to our family to the south um, to create a program. And then I think the, the exciting part for me, because, you know, we took FEMA as our um, template to build our program. I think the exciting part of the Canadian system now is now we're putting more maple leaf on it, right? We're saying, okay, let's take that system. What do we need it for Canada? Yeah. So it's not that FEMA's system doesn't work up here, but we want to take FEMA's system and then Canadianize it so that it's functional for us. But at the same time, being able to be interoperable with you guys. So I think it's win-win. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for those of you that want to get more information uh, on the mental health system, on what is going on, not only with Canada, with the U.S. and abroad, and uh, learn more about Canada's urban search and rescue system, we'll have Dave Chief Bain's information uh, mm -hmm. with the show notes uh, that you all can come back to. And uh, we want to thank uh, Chief Dave Bain again. We want to thank the uh, City of uh, Red Deer Emergency Services. We want to thank Canada Task Force too. We want to thank the uh, country of Canada for uh, letting him stand there and, and give us information and give the country information. And I'm looking forward to seeing him again and uh, even seeing him or one of them at the uh, uh, medical specialist course that Disaster Medical Solutions putting on in uh, late November, early December. Dave, mm -hmm. have a wonderful night. Thank you again for being that solid responder. You're a hero. You, you, you're changing the country, you're making things happen. And uh, obviously you're, you're, a, you're a good family man as well. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to call, call you a friend. Thank you, brother. Thank you so much. You have a great night.